Welcome back to the GP Productions podcast. Welcome back to the show, and today I've got a man that he's a biographer, a writer, an author, Mr. Ian Douglas. How are you today, man? Doing well, Maurice. Thank you so much for having me here. No problem, man. We're gonna we're gonna talk about a little bit of your work and to why it kind of fits in with uh, kind of several guests I'd have on this show as well. But to start things off, anyway, just want to know a bit about yourself and how did you decide that you wanted to go into this field and just a bit of background maybe on your education. Oh, sure. I've, I've been an avid wrestling fan for the bulk of my life, ever since 85, 86, when my, my parents weren't quite aware that I was developing an interest in wrestling yet, and I would sneak off to watch whenever I got an opportunity. Um, as, far as, that, as far as education is concerned, a bachelor's degree is from the University of Michigan. Uh, brief period of time at the Spex Howard School of Broadcast Arts, that's in Southfield, Michigan, Graduated from Northwestern University with a master's degree in journalism, was a reporter for NBC News in Flint, Michigan, briefly, uh, presently a writer for Mel Magazine, primarily in the areas of health and fitness, also chief communications officer for XL Plus International, a publicly traded plasma gasification company, and just completed a, my executive MBA at the Quantic School of Business and Technology. So you've got a lot going on right now. Always have a lot going on, and I, I wouldn't have it any other way. When I have uh, when I have moments to kick back and relax, that's when I panic the most. Uh, as as far as getting involved in the field of writing or the area, I should say, of writing about wrestling. That happened in 2016 when I was assisting the Meyer State Games of Michigan with some blog posts related to athletics. I'm a Michigan native. I thought it would be a good idea, if, if possible, to interview Dan Severn. And when I interviewed, I went into the interview thinking that if I could just get Severn for 15 minutes, he would be able to adequately cover everything I needed out of him and he stayed on the phone with me for an hour and a half and yeah. he was he was very profusive with the content and I just thought man if if I could get him for a, a dozen or so segments like that there's probably a book's worth of content there and yeah. Severn stayed in touch and at one point we had that conversation and I told him if he gave me an hour or so a day for two weeks we could get a book's worth of content completed that's what we did and uh that resulted in uh the realest guy in the room the life and times of dan with b7 
What exactly was it that you required off of Dan that initial time you talked to him for the project? Oh, I'm I'm sure it was I I'd have to think back on the specifics of the blog post. I'm I'm quite positive it no longer exists, but it was probably a, a, along the lines of um, the attributes it takes to be an effective amateur wrestler or to be effective in, in combat sports. The audience for these posts was pr primarily high school aged kids, the type of folks who would have been competing in a sports festival of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, you touched on it there earlier that you, you watch wrestling, but you you kind of alluded that maybe your parents didn't know. Was wrestling kind of a taboo thing in the 80s over in the States? Was it kind of frowned upon? Or um, I don't know that it was frowned upon in the States. It was certainly yeah. frowned upon frowned upon in my house. Um, yeah. You know, with, with all of the... Um, you know, it's almost like magic bullet theory, this, this belief that uh, something will have a strong and immediate effect on you. Um, and I don't, I don't know that my parents were necessarily wrong. And the first time I saw Randy Savage drop an elbow off the top rope on somebody, I went into my bedroom and started dropping elbows on yeah. my stuffed animals. So they weren't, they weren't entirely wrong about that. But um, they very quickly, uh, they saw the physicality. They decided they didn't want their... I think they made the decision when I was seven or eight. They didn't want their seven or eight-year-old son to be violently flinging things around the room or the house, you know, the power of suggestion. So wrestling viewing was, for all intents and purposes, banned in our household until I was about 12 years old. So really yeah. a, only a four or five-year period, but that... By no means did that prevent me from sneaking off to watch it every Saturday and Sunday. They, yeah. they couldn't monitor me all the time. The only people that don't understand wrestling are the people that do not watch it. And then for anyone that does watch it, they understand. But I get the feeling that the people that don't watch it and don't understand, especially here in Ireland, would be like, but that's fake. You know, that's the kind of uh, attitude that you get from non-wrestling fans, that it's fake. And then my comeback to that is, this is a TV show. I said, do you watch The Walking Dead or what do you watch? Like, that's that's your TV show. That's not real. You know, they're not real zombies. I'm sorry to break it to you. Yeah. you know, uh, Ma kind of Ma Maurice, I've got to be completely honest with you. When I was five, six, seven, eight years old, I thought it was 100% real. Of course. And, of course uh, you would have that was, and, and that was And that was the joy of it. And, yeah. um, you know, I was able to develop a an appreciation for it as a performance art when I got older and was able to accept and acknowledge that it wasn't that it was in fact a performance art but uh, that's what informed my fandom from that point on yeah and in terms of meeting Dan then in 2016 and making the book with him did you have any other books released before that book this no, is your first one very first and did you ever imagine that your first book that's going to be published is going to be pro wrestling? Or was that something ever in your mind? Oh, man. Um, it certainly would have been a dream of mine to write anything wrestling related and to have my name permanently affixed to it and to be acknowledged as a wrestling writer. Um, I was definitely the guy in 
1999, 2000, 2001, who was sitting in the computer lab at the University of Michigan reading a Death Valley Driver video review, the Death Valley Driver video review board, mm -hmm. um, writings of Dean Rasmussen and Phil Schneider when I should have been studying and doing my homework. Um, but those guys, those guys were very inspirational to me. They were, they were clever, they were funny, they were knowledgeable. And, you know, at the, but at that point, it would have been just a dream to write about wrestling. Now, now, with that being said, when I was at Northwestern University living in, in the Chicago area, I was able to cover Windy City wrestling events to a degree. Yeah. And that was considered part of the education student reporting experience. But as, as far as me writing a book, period, no, never. Uh, I never thought that I'd have the discipline and I never thought I'd have the, the substance and the wealth of content to be able to write a book. Because um, if we're being honest, and this is going to sound somewhat cruel, but most people I meet even now who talk about writing, if, if they hear that I've helped interesting people uh, write their autobiographies, almost invariably they'll say, oh, I've been thinking about writing a book. Um, I never say this to their face, but more often than not, they shouldn't. Uh, they're thinking about the one, they're thinking about one interesting aspect of their lives that will probably, if they really drew it out, they'd fill 20, maybe 30 pages with that they're writing it in a really distended form. Mm -hmm. And now I'm wondering what they're going to fill the other 270 pages with. Um, yeah. So most people flat out shouldn't. And fortunately, professional wrestlers, they do lead by the very essence such interesting lives. Um, you know, unparalleled in some respects, every aspect of them from the time they get into the business, like breaking in, uh, moving from territory to territory, um, interactions with fans, maintaining kayfabe, that there's, there's really nothing else to compare it to. And you can very easily fill anywhere from 300 to 500 pages with content. Funny enough, uh, when I first started doing this podcast, I was kind of planning out I was trying to plan out i didn't want to just start it and be kind of oh here's an episode and then maybe in a couple of weeks later here's an episode so what i've been doing is i started in october 2019 and i've done at least two episodes per week up until now which is what is it february i can never remember dates since this pandemic as well so it's about a, it's about nearly a year and a half so when i first started it i was lucky enough to get a nice collection of people including butterbean as one of my first guests and i had him on and funny enough a couple of weeks after i released the butterbean episode dan severin obviously must have seen it on facebook because he messaged me and he said oh i see you had butterbean on your show and do you want to tell me a bit about your show and how many viewers you have and that kind of thing now at the time i didn't really have that many so i just sent them an honest thing i sent this is what i got dan sent it over to him but he never really replied but he he, he still took an interest to it and seen it and maybe as the channel has grown i will hit him back up again some point and he might come on and talk to me 
I'll I'll gladly uh, I'll gladly advocate on your behalf to to help yeah. get him on the show. He you can... uh, he wrestled he wrestled Butterbean um, mm-hmm. in, in an MMA contest, and Butterbean is a fellow I think Mid Michigan guy. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm sure Dan follows Butterbean with with some sort of interest. Yeah, I think those guys probably do a lot of conventions and stuff together and they cross over at MMA and boxing world and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, the reception to the book when it came out, what was it like? Were you happy with it? Um, I wasn't happy with the book. Um, yeah. If I'm, if I'm being quite honest. And it's, and it's not that the content isn't... Um, You know, I recall a, a quote from my childhood, the great Detroit Pistons uh, coach, Chuck Daly, from, uh, yeah. of course, I'm a Metro Detroit guy, so I'm going to reference the Detroit Pistons. But <laughs> he made the comment when the Pistons went to their first NBA finals and lost and then came back the next year and won it. He said, the first time you go through a process, you're just dying for it to be over. And then it, it's only once it's over that you truly understand what, what the process is, what you should have done, and then how you would attack it again. And you know, when, when I first got involved with, with Severn and the writing of this book, um, I was thinking, okay, I'm on the hook to do this. Now, how do I do it? And I was, I was figuring it out as I went. We did not have a publisher lined up. We wound up signing with What Culture uh, yeah. right around the time that What Culture was going through this massive shift in terms of um, who was working for them. In fact, um, the uh, I, I won't say his name in case there are any issues, but the, the gentleman with What Culture who was putting the majority of their books together at the time uh, I think he was quickly shifted out of there uh, shortly after the editing of the book was supposed to have been completed. Okay. So um, the book did not receive the level of promotion from what culture that we would have initially expected it to. Um, that is, I mean, that's just the sort of thing that happens when you have that degree of turnover going on. Yeah. Um, but more to the point, the there were a lot of typos in the book. Okay. Um, yeah. There were there were a lot of typos, and um, Dan and I worked on a a draft that we thought was completely edited. Um, we thought that the, the editor, um, imagine that that the editor over at World Culture was going to do a thorough editing job following that, and. Yeah. Um, a lot of typos still remained in the book. Um, something that I'm frankly ashamed of, not only because it doesn't reflect particularly well on me, but Dan's name is the name on the book. Um, so I get another bite at the apple. Um, Dan and I may actually be working on another book and I can cor- correct that, um, correct those oversights. But um, yes, if I had to do it all over again, uh, I would have followed the model that I've taken with subsequent projects, which is to take my time. There's absolutely no rush in getting these things completed in terms there's no rush in putting them out. You should take the time, be thorough, 
make sure the story is told, assume you only get one bite at the apple and put out the project that you as a wrestling fan would be satisfied in receiving and saying, this is money well spent. Yeah. But then if you look at the first book, obviously, and if I look back even at my first episode, when I used to do these podcasts, I was recording on a, an iPhone on my kitchen table. Now I got a different computer to do it. And the way I'm, I'm thinking about it is if I look back to a year ago, I'd be like, ah, that doesn't really look great. That doesn't really sound great. How do I better that? And I suppose it's the same with writing, is it? You have to always try and better your last project. Um, absolutely. And it helps when you make great connections with people who know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, it was, it was during that time. Uh, and again, the I, I also encourage people if they have an opportunity to do something, um, even if, even if the financial reward to you is zero, if you have the time to do something for the first time and an opportunity presents itself, the correct answer is almost always yes because of the experience you'll gain through doing it, because of the connections you'll make as a result of having done it, it almost always behooves you to take up the challenge. So with that lead in, um, just over the course of working on the first book, um, I met Kenny Bevan, also known as Kenny Casanova, who has put out the books of Kamala, Brutus Beefcake, Tito Santana, Vader, and a host of other people. And we got to the point in a couple of years later in 2018, when I was working on Bugsy McGraw's book, and I was going to be publishing that one myself. And I, and when Kenny learned that, he would say, okay, um, go read a go go watch a video on how to format a book yourself go read a document on how to prep photos for a book and how to drop them into the text yourself now go look up how to do the sizing now go look at how to get your own isbn and how to how to modify the cover if you absolutely had to and so at, at that point, you become a one-stop shop. You become the book publisher own on your, all on your own. And you start to learn that you don't need to go to the major publishers to get any of these things done. You don't want to be the helpless guy turning in a manuscript and saying, okay, now please make this look acceptable for me. You're, you're better off if you can do it yourself. And so... I credit Kenny for that a great deal. And also, I also credit my, my very good friend, Oliver Bateman, because um, he's the gentleman who writes the exquisite and thorough um, obituaries for the ringer for all that are, that are always very meticulously researched. And he has, written and evaluated and scrutinized every wrestlers, every wrestling biography or autobiography that he can get his hands on. And so he's an, an excellent resource to bounce ideas off of. And also he's a wonderful guy to just um, you send the first draft to, for instance, and have yeah. him evaluate it because 
he's read absolutely everything and he knows what makes a good wrestling autobiography. Yeah. It reminds me what you're saying there about kind of being able to do what you can yourself at home about guys I'll be talking to and the music industry that maybe 10, 15 years ago, they had to go to a studio. Now they can nearly record an album in their own house. Like it's nearly the same thing. Yes. One, 100%. And now, and it becomes something that you take pride in. And now I only go to like, for instance, um, for instance, Brian's book. I, I certainly, oh, there we go. I certainly can't draw this well. Um, yeah. and so I went to Mr. Uh, Leitzel to help put the cover art together for me. But, but aside from that, everything between the cover is 100% um, written or inserted into the book by me. And there's also a lot of pressure that comes with that because, you know, in the case of, in, in the case of the, the what culture, I'll call it debacle with Dan's book, um, I, I take ownership of that from the standpoint that the project was rushed. And, yep. and I, I have to say that I had a hand in getting the project rushed to print. But aside from that, now I'm in a position where if there's one jot or tittle, so to speak, in the book that's out of place, it is 100% my fault and the buck stops here. And if anyone sees anything that's incorrect, yeah, come complain to me because it's my fault. Yeah. Do you, would you, do you rather that kind of pressure or is it pressure or do you prefer having it in your own hands kind of? I do. Um, one of the, um, one of the difficulties with going to a publisher and I'll use my friend, John Plombon as an example, he's the, the gentleman who wrote the, um, the book on the UWF and Herb Abrams that just came out. I think it came out in September of last year. And he was on Facebook in 2020 lamenting that he had a 430 page book. Um, mostly that had a lot of original interviews with yeah. UWF stars and also um, moment by moment write-ups on every UWF show that has ever been recorded. Um, a lot of great information throughout the book. This 430 pages long. And he spoke with a few literary agents and publishers who said, you need to chop this down to 300 pages and then maybe we'll take a look at it. And I went to him and, um, you know, there are some projects um, that's not, this isn't to say that there aren't some projects that can benefit from being condensed. But if, if you've taken the trouble to write the book and you stand by every word or bit of punctuation that's in it, and it's 430 pages long, and you decide that that's the length it should be, if, if you have to take it to a literary agent or a publisher who's going to tell you that it needs to be reduced by more than 25%, that is a, that is a deep cut. Yeah. And, and I advised him, you know, as, and 
Well, also, you. Um, sorry, there are too many thoughts going through my head at once. Um, yeah, but, but you get into the, um, by the time you take it to a literary agent um, and you get feedback and they start shopping the book, um, just to get it to the point where they'll, fi they'll finally start shopping it, that could be six months to a year. Um, getting it into the hands of a publisher and then the publisher saying that edits and revisions need to be completed, that can take another six months to a year. Or if you've made the decision that everything is as it should be, you can take it to a publisher or you can or a, a or you can put it out in a glorified self-published manner while still making sure that everything is as it should be. And you can set your own publication date and you can put it out when you want to put it out. So yeah. that's what um, especially for for wrestlers or people who are writing wrestling related books, um, you you can find your audience. Uh, they're very neatly arranged in groups on Facebook or um, or in or other blog sites online. You can very easily find them. You can very easily market your book to them. And you don't need to rely on a publisher who's going to pay you $1 per copy when against an advance when the book comes out, as opposed to the $10 per copy you can make selling it yourself. Yeah. In terms of Dylan Hornswoggle, how did you guys meet to do the book? And did he, did he approach you to do it? The day after I finished um, the final interview with Severn. Okay. I decided to go to the gym for the first time in two weeks. Yeah. And as I was on the elliptical, I was listening to an episode of, uh, of Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast. It happened to be, I think it was Dylan's first interview after his release. And I was, I was listening to it and I could not stop laughing. I, I thought it was hilarious when, when he was talking about his time on his early time in the Indies in Wisconsin and, and Illinois wrestling a short stack, the man, the myth, the midget. I, I remember yeah, that yeah. cracked me up. I got off the elliptical. Uh, I went back to the Airbnb that I was staying in in Virginia. My my now wife, uh, then fiance, was living in. Actually, she wasn't quite my. She was a, a month away from being my fiance. Uh, yeah. She was living in DC at the time, and I was living in that area visiting her. Um, but I went back to the Airbnb, got on Twitter, found his booking email, sent him a message, told him I was in the process of working on Severance book, but I thought his story was incredible and I'd like to help him get it to print. Went, took a shower, came back, checked my email excuse me, he had already replied and said he would be interested. And within two weeks, we were up and running and starting the first round of interviews for his book. Yeah. And that, that obviously went down very well then, that book, didn't it? Yeah. Um, but that is a case where um, two things. Number one, that was a book that I thought needed to be taken to a serious publisher. And I went the literary agent route. And... I wasn't sure what level of completeness the book needed to be in. And it was, um, 
probably between 350 and 400 pages, all things considered. Um, but I wasn't sure what stage of completeness it needed to be in before it was taken to a literary agent. And the literary agent got it, and they started the process of shopping it around. And it took a year. And when they got it over to ECW Press, uh, ECW Press wanted it greatly condensed and they had their own guy who'd worked on um, Bob Holly and Al Snow's books, who was tremendous, it's Ross Owen Williams. And he took the reins at that point and he was responsible for fashioning Dylan's story into a 300 page version that got released. And Ross has, did a phenomenal job with it. Yeah. In terms of yourself then, um, have you been writing much during the the last couple of years with the pandemic and things or have you any projects that you have coming up oh man um ones that you could well, talk about well okay well with the yeah. last couple of years um brian blair and i started writing his autobiography in um it was may or june i think it was june of 2020 and that's when they again it, it helps to know people. Kenny Casanova messaged me and said, the writer of Brian Blair's autobiography is looking to dump the project. He wants to do other things. Uh, that gentleman's name was Scott Stevens. Kenny recommended me to Brian and Scott as the writer for that project. I'd already spoken with Brian on a couple of occasions uh, because he contributed the hold on visualized he contributed the afterward to uh bugsy mcgraw's autobiography through power form yeah so um i don't i don't think it was a very hard sell at that point i spoke with scott spoke with brian uh they were both on board with having that transition made and from that point on i spoke with brian uh, three times a week, one hour each time from uh, the beginning of June through, I think, the end of September. And uh, it was during that period where we accumulated the bulk of what would be his story. And there, there are always other stories that need to be added in later on. But we finally had a first draft completed. Uh, probably January or February of of twenty one, yeah. And then we we worked through another couple drafts. We got I'm, I say we like I can take any credit. Uh, Brian got Hulk Hogan, uh, Steve Kern, and Bret Hart to provide forwards and afterwards for the book. And uh, then the book was subsequently released in October of twenty one. So yes, that was that was quite a bit of writing that I was doing during the pandemic, and also um, tangentially related to this, um, only because of some of the material I've been able to write. I was picked up as the health and fitness, primarily health and fitness writer for Mel Magazine, but Josh Schulmeyer is the editor of the magazine, and he happens to be a huge pro wrestling fan. So. When I pitched as, well, 
whenever I pitch something wrestling related, he'll usually give it a fair look. But when I pitched that it was the 40th anniversary of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, he um, he said, yeah, go talk to Dave Meltzer. And so I contacted Dave Meltzer and Dave was happy to oblige. And we got a uh, 40 years of Dave's uh, remembrances and uh, he gave a thorough review of what he believes his influence has been on the wrestling industry over the years and what changes he's seen during that time. Man, that's very interesting. If I was to mention to you, you could pick one person to write a book with in the wrestling industry, who would it be? Oh my goodness. Um, live alive or dead? We'll say alive. Ugh, alive. Um, it's okay. It's, it's, it's not realistic to say the rock, for instance. Um, why not? Why not? Uh, well, I know that, I know that the, uh, I know that the Bugsy McGraw book wound up at his house because his mother asked for a copy to be sent there. So I actually, I, Walked out, went over to the post office and sent it to the Rock's house in California. That was nice. that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, having a a thorough six, seven hundred page autobiography of the Rock from covering from infancy through his his time in Hollywood, that would be that would be a dream project to work on. Um, also having and, and now that I've spoken to him, I'm, I'm not attempting to put this out there um, as, as something I'm lobbying for. But mm-hmm. now that I think about it, like all of those WWF, WWE autobiographies, really with the exception of Mick Foley's, um, they just had too much. They just had too much corporate oversight. They were... Mm-hmm. They were way too condensed. They weren't satisfying, and if they weren't, they weren't personal, right? And so yeah. somebody, somebody like Hogan, if you, if you really gave it room to breathe and said, let's let's take this from the time of you growing up in Tampa. Let's talk once. Let's talk once a week, even for an hour, and. Let's set aside an entire year to do interviews. So by the end of the year, we've got a collection of 52 interviews. And let's put out a 600 to 1,000 page Hulk Hogan autobiography covering absolutely everything so that you feel like you've been given a, you feel like you've said everything you ever wanted to say about your life to your fans with no filter. I think. I think something like that would be incredible. But you know, even even in saying that, um, you know, other people who sort of got shafted by the WWE book system, uh, Kurt Angle, is is another one. He's told me himself he thought his book sucked. Well, I I would be thrilled to work with Kurt on <laughs> on correcting that that error. Yeah, and he's got a obviously a massive story with the Olympics, the neck break. Like, there's so much things in there as well, you know. Yeah. Um, and Steve Austin? I exchanged emails with Steve Austin a week ago after the it's 
I'll I'll tell you. It's it's absolutely stupid how how these things go. Um, I'll just say this. I was given a I was given a distribution list by Kenny of people that when you're putting your own book out, you can put your own press releases out. Here's a curated list of people who might be interested um, in um, amplifying that message um, and helping you reach a larger audience. So um, there were emails on that list that I, I have no idea who they went to. I just sent it out and I've been sending stuff to this email distribution list for years. And yeah. when I put the Meltzer interview out, um, I received a response from I received a response from Steve Austin saying he appreciated, <laughs> um, saying that he appreciated um, the read. And then we exchanged a few more emails, and he said he'd be interested in reading Brian's book. So I, I sent one to him. But then you go back, and you, but then you go back and you look at the uh, you you look at the email address and the way it's constructed you're like oh yeah that's what that means like that that makes sense that that would be steve austin's email address so, <laughs> yeah i i would love to do steve austin's book it's not going to happen uh those guys are too big they have access to the cream of the crop in, in terms of writers and ghost writers period and you know i'll be frank i'll be frank about it i'm just happy I'm just happy to be here. That's not to say that I can't help someone write a competent autobiography. I think at this stage, I've proven that I'm capable of doing so, but I'm just happy to be involved because you grow up as a wrestling fan. You're a kid. I'm, I'm six years old watching my first Killer Bees match on television and never dreaming that 30 plus years later, I'd have an opportunity to help Brian Blair write his autobiography. And you're forever linked to these guys at that point. So it's it's a, a dream and a privilege just to be involved with their projects. Yeah, you've you've kind of come full circle from the childhood to where you are now. And listening, I really appreciate your time on the show today. Thanks so much. Maurice, it was it was a true pleasure. I'd be happy to come back and I'd be happy to advocate to get any number of other people on this show what we'll do is we'll catch up in a when you have another project coming out and we'll see see how you're going absolutely thanks cheers man this.